Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. I'm really excited about Genesis 35. We are um, kind of in a season of uh, a bit of a transition uh, that we'll talk more about um, as we kind of work our way through. But um, it is interesting because uh, Genesis so so clearly displays this as you work chapter to chapter and section to section. You have these, these big sections, these big um, seasons uh, that you kind of like engage with the characters and, uh, and then they're gone, right? And um, it's a lot like life. <laughs> and, then there's, uh, and then there's new seasons. And so we are on kind of the precipice of a new season um, as we come into uh, Genesis 35. Um, as we see, uh, newfound obedience and the residual effects of sin. That's kind of what we're, that's what we're talking through. That's what we're walking through this morning from Genesis 35. Newfound obedience and the residual effects of sin. Genesis 35 is filled with um, positive changes as well as like kind of this residue that is left over from uh, sinful decisions that have been made in the past, which we're familiar with, right? Um, Like we get what that looks like. We understand. In fact, I think we referenced that to a certain extent last week. We talked about how um, God's people are not immune from feeling the effects of sinful decisions, selfish decisions that we've made in our past that maybe were years ago that now we continue to see to some uh, degree the effects of. Um, There's a a documentary series that I got into pretty heavily uh, within the last like two or three months um, on one of the major networks in which they are dealing with substance abuse issues. Um, And as I was thinking through Genesis 35 this past week and then some of the some of the residual effects, I was thinking about this most recent um, season uh, from this show in which they were dealing exclusively in North Atlanta, what is oftentimes referred to uh, as the heroin triangle. It's so impacted by by opiate use and heroin use, and um, it's just affecting so many lives. and And I was thinking about all of the all of the various methods by which these individuals who are struggling with substance abuse uh, were going in order to. Um, um, in order to, to, to feel the effects, right? Um, there were multiple instances of, of addicts who were, um, who were cleaning out residue from tubes and from dispensers in order to um, engage with their drug of, of choice. Um, as we think about what we see in Genesis 35, we really see this residue, this, this, this residual effect left over um, that continues to wreak havoc in many ways from sinful decisions that have taken place in the past in spite of the positive changes that we observe in the life of Jacob um, currently. So so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at and what we are engaging in. Um, In Genesis 33 and 34, we see the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau followed by this point of regression. This is where we were last week. Esau... um, Esau invites Jacob and his family to journey back to Seir with him following this really beautiful and intimate uh, encounter that they, um, that, they, that they are a part of as Jacob ventures back into the land. There's this serious concern as to whether or not um, Esau is going to uh, is going to just take care of business, right? It's just going to kind of do what he had desired to do when Jacob had fled all those years earlier. That's certainly a concern that Jacob is experiencing. And then, to our surprise, it's this really beautiful embrace, right? We see this great illustration of the power of gospel reconciliation as we look at Genesis thirty three and thirty four. As God's people, we we consider broken relationships that are a part of so many of our stories, there is great hope in what we see here and that God is able to bring about a a, a restored relationship with even the most broken of human relationships, right? That's kind of where we have been over over the past few weeks, but we did see this point of regression, 
Um, it was a high point. Yay, Jacob, things are going really well, like you're, you're displaying obedience. And yet there is this moment in Genesis 33 and 34, at which point Jacob fails to lead with honesty. As his brother invites him to journey back to Seir with him, he and his family, and, and Jacob um, not desiring to, to go with him, as opposed to saying, no, the Lord has called me to Bethel, says, well, you go ahead and we'll kind of like move along at our own pace, right? He's clinging to this, like, maybe we'll make it to Seir one day. And so is this a lie or is this the truth? Uh, when in reality, Jacob had no business being in Seir and he had no business explaining his reason for not going with Esau the way that he did. Um, it was a, a clear display of disobedience obedience on Jacob's part um, that led to this family in chaos um, as we worked our way through verse uh, chapter 34. I'm catching us all up here, okay, in the beginning, because we are seeing some really incredible things as we come into 35, but 34 was a train wreck. Okay, 34 was an absolute mess uh, as we see just like murder and um, and rape. And it's just this really sad, tragic scene in Genesis 34, all as a result of Jacob's disobedience and his failure to to move into the land in which the Lord called him. Right. Uh, and so that's kind of where we have been this morning. Um, again, we're, we're transitioning. Right. We're transitioning into uh, Genesis 34. 35, um, where we will observe the persistence of God, right? In fact, let's put this on the screen. This is our, uh, maybe our, our, our thesis, our main idea uh, for the morning. This would be a great thing for you to write down if you are a note taker. What do we observe from Genesis 35? We observe the persistence of God providing opportunity for obedience, the persistence of God providing opportunity for obedience, worship, and perspective, right? All of the different ways in which, in which, God's, uh, in which God works as we, as we kind of settle into what he's doing here uh, in, uh, in Genesis 35. The persistence of God provides opportunity for obedience, worship, and perspective. This does not, however, negate the residual effects of sin. And so there's a really neat opportunity for you and I to lean into what we see in Genesis 35 this morning and understand what it looks like to live in a world in which we are called into obedience in which we are called into a life and a posture of worship and adoration for God, while at the same time balancing it with the negative residual effects of sinful decisions that we have made um, in the past. How do we continue forward, right? That's kind of the question. How do we continue forward and how do we continue to, to worship and desire obedience when we are clearly in many ways dealing with the effects of sin in our, in our lives? This is where we are. So let's, let's jump in. All right, let's jump into Genesis 35. Again, I said this last week. One of the things that we like to do is to, um, is to develop and establish rhythms as a church. And one of the rhythms that we desire to establish is that we would be a people of the book, right? That we would be a people of the word. And so um, what does that look like? Well, um, my desired posture for you, believing that this is going to be good for you in the long run, is that as we work through Genesis 35, that you would sit um, with your Bibles open, right? That you would have your Bible open if you don't have a Bible. We have Bibles for you. You can download an app literally in like two seconds and have everything that we're going to be, that we're going to be reading through this morning. But it's one of the rhythms that we, um, that we desire to see established is that we'd be a people of the book. And so I invite you open up to Genesis 35 as we go verse by verse through what we see here. We begin with a call. A call in Genesis 35. What began in Genesis 31, verse 3, God's call to Jacob while he was still in Haran, which was, return to the land of your fathers and your kindred, and I will be with you, culminated last week with Jacob's choosing to settle in Shechem instead of going 20 miles further into Bethel. 
We talked about last week how there was both a spiritual and a physical regression that took place in the life of Jacob. And after after all of the celebration of what God had done between he and Esau, now there is this physical and spiritual regression. He was 20 miles from Bethel, and instead he decided to to regress, to, to move back. And all of this, as we said just a few moments ago, gave way to a scene of total chaos in Genesis 34. Rape, murder, um, family uh, experiencing conflict as a result of the son's decision to take um, vengeance for uh, the honor of their sister having been so, um, so assaulted in the way that it was. Look with me at verse 1 of Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. So it's a call that actually began in Genesis 31, preceded by a promise in Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, the Lord makes it clear that he was to bring Jacob back to this land as he was fleeing from his brother and his brother's desire to take his own life. In Genesis 31.3, God calls Jacob back to the land. In Genesis 34, we observe reconciliation followed by regression. And now in Genesis 35, there is this yet again word of the Lord coming to Jacob, calling him to arise and to go to Bethel, to go up to Bethel and to dwell in Bethel. This call to what could be understood as a pilgrimage of sorts is an incredible one given what we had observed in previous scenes from the life of Jacob. Regression, right? Sin in response to God's grace, right? The fact that the word of the Lord comes to Jacob again and calls him into the land again in light of his regression into sin again serves to highlight for us the persistence of God that we're bringing out here in our main idea, in our thesis, God is persistent. How do we know that? How do we observe that? Okay, perhaps you would concede that God is persistent, but in what ways? And how do we observe it in Genesis 35? The fact that the word of God comes to Jacob again in light of this sinful regression observable in previous chapters is a display of his persistence. God is persistent. As I read through this first first few verses, I couldn't help but think about a story that many of us are probably very familiar with, that being the story of Jonah. Anybody familiar with the story of Jonah before? You read through the book of Jonah, right? The book of Jonah begins with this call of God upon his prophet to go to Nineveh and to cry out against their sin. And Jonah responds how? Well, in disobedience, right? As opposed to, to, to sailing on, to continuing on to Nineveh, he regresses, right? He bounces. He goes the opposite direction, at which point the Lord displays his persistence and his kindness in some really unorthodox ways, right? Jonah would say that, right? Uh, by, by having Jonah cast into the sea, swallowed by fish, and vomited up on dry land, only then to call him again to go to Nineveh. As I read through God's persistence in the life of Jacob, as I considered what we have observed in previous chapters and the way that we continue to see God work, I couldn't help but be reminded of the, of the story of, of Jonah. God's persistence to again and again and again pursue after the heart of his people. We see it in the heart of, of Jonah, his prophet, in the book of Jonah, and we see it here for Jacob. God's God's persistence and commitment to work in the life of Jacob, to transform the life and the heart of Jacob, right? In order that his mission might be accomplished. Remember, this this is big picture stuff. We're trying to read the book of Genesis in light of the promise that we read for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right, the, the proto-evangelium, God's promise there in the beginning to rescue and to redeem, to reconcile and to defeat, right? to defeat evil and to defeat sin, to make a way by which humanity 
might be brought back into and restored to relationship with God. He says how he's going to do this. We see light shone upon that in Genesis chapter 12, and as Abraham is, is injected into the story, right? And now we see, again, God displaying persistence and and grace and compassion as his word comes to Jacob and says, arise and go to Bethel. This is not new news, right? But it is news at just the right time as Jacob has found himself in a a wayward position. This is an act of, of kindness, a display of persistence. The word of God comes again to Jacob, get up and go to Bethel. And he says, when you arrive there, continuing on in verse 1, we've got the call to go, but what do you do when you get there? He says, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And so the Lord does this really beautiful thing in connecting for Jacob his previous call, doesn't he? He's drawing out for Jacob his own heart of persistence. In Genesis 35.1, we see a case study on the character of our triune God. Right? As you talk about, or as we talk about living mission, which I encouraged you guys to be about and to pray and to consider, what does this look like for me in the beginning? I think one of the things that we so often find is that we are engaging a culture that is altogether unfamiliar with the character and nature of God. Right? If you sit down and you engage in a conversation with a skeptic and you ask them to tell you of the God that they don't believe in, many times as a result of what they have to say, you will say, I don't believe in that God either. Right? That there's this, this confusion as to who God is. There's this confusion surrounding his nature. All right, so where we're able to, to, in a sense, bridge the gap and say, allow me to tell you who God really is. In Genesis 35, 1, we see a perfect example of a text that we might go to with a skeptic or a text that might even encourage our own hearts this morning as we struggle in understanding who God is. Genesis 35, 1 paints this beautiful picture for us. As to who God is, man, who, who is he? Who is God based on what we read here in the first verse of Genesis chapter 35? Well, he is a self-revealing God. Did you get that? It's helpful to make a note of that, right? That God is a self-revealing God, that we do not have to guess as to who God is. In fact, when we find ourselves guessing as to who God is, we oftentimes find ourselves in a great degree of distress, Right? God is self-revealing. How has God revealed himself? How's he revealed himself? Well, he's revealed himself through his word, hasn't he? Absolutely. Amen. Right? That's why we're people of the book. That's why I encourage you in the beginning, man. Open the book and have it in your lap and sit here with it. Why? Well, because God reveals himself to us through his word. God is a self-revealing God. We don't have to guess as to who he is. We don't have to pick and to choose. Again, when we do, we find ourselves in a real mess, right? Our desire ought to be to know who God is in light of what God has to say about himself, about in light of what God has to say about who he is. That's number one. God is is self-revealing. As we lean into Genesis 35, 1 and this character study on God, right? All of this within the call that God extends. God is self-revealing. That's number one. Number two, what do we learn about God in this brief case study? into his character. Well, we learn that our God is a God who meets his people in their distress. God is a God who who meets his people in their distress. That's something that we have observed again and again and again in the life of Jacob, right? It's something that we observed prior in the life of, of, of Isaac and prior in the life of Abraham as we look forward and we're on the, man, we're right on the edge of a very familiar section within the book of Genesis. That is Joseph, right? We are going to yet again, right, be, be reacquainted with this idea of God being a God who meets his people in their distresses, so God is self-revealing in light of what we see here in Genesis 35.1. He, he meets us in our distress. Jacob has no comprehension of even how much distress he finds himself in as we enter into Genesis chapter 35. But he is out of step and in need of being brought back. The Lord is persistent in doing that. Number three, 
right? He is self-revealing. He meets us in our distress all before, number three, calling his creation to worship him as he deserves and as he and as we should. So God is self-revealing. He meets us in our distress and he calls creation to worship him as he deserves and as we should. But we need to acknowledge in light of these three truths in order to respond differently is our struggle to believe these things. What we need to acknowledge is that we just stated three very simple points from Genesis 35.1, but if we're honest with ourselves, we have a hard time believing these things about God oftentimes. Right, that he, that he is self-revealing, right? That we need to know God in his word and that we ought not just, um, just kind of like do our own work, right? And just kind of like figure it out as we go or chalk the word up to this outdated text that is best, um, best suited to sit on a shelf as we engage with culture around us and, and just practice like real progression, right? Like just really knocking it out of the park in terms of moving forward. We have a hard time believing that God is self-revealing, that his word is sufficient. We have a hard time believing oftentimes that our God is a God who meets us in our distress. How many times have we found ourselves distraught? How many times have we found ourselves heartbroken? How many times have we found ourselves troubled and we go, God, where are you? Right? Like, do you meet your people in their distress? Like, it seems like here you do, but like, it doesn't feel that way now. At which point we begin to get into this conversation of the need not to submit ourselves ultimately to our feelings, but what we know to be true. Is that helpful? Does that make sense? Like I, there was, I think one thing that I wish that we could just like corporately come together with like pickaxe and shovel, dig a hole here in the BCM floor. That would make Bill really mad and then throw in and bury it. It would be this idea of like feeling trumping what we know to be true. All right. Like our feelings, our feelings entirely and altogether evil and to be done away with? No, like not, I wouldn't say that, right? But there are times in which our feelings find themselves wearing the crown of what we know to be true. God, it doesn't feel like you meet your people in, in our distress. It doesn't feel as though you have met me in my distress. When we cannot even begin to fathom the lengths by which God has gone to meet his people in their distresses, We see it here in the life of Jacob. We've observed it over and over again. We're going to observe it in the life of Joseph as we progress forward through the book of Genesis. But all of this culminates with God meeting his people in their most distressful hour by way of the incarnation. Right, the incarnation, why is the incarnation important? Why is the incarnation not this, this doctrinal or theological position that ought to be done away with, tossed out with the bathwater? You can take the incarnation or you can toss the incarnation. It's kind of whatever. There's a, a realm of theology that would say that that is a, a position that you ought to consider. Why do we cling to the incarnation? Well, because this is the preeminent example of God meeting his people in their distress condescending and and entering into a broken creation, into a broken world in order to reconcile us as, as Christ loves and lives the law perfectly before becoming the object of God's wrath on the cross, spilling his blood so that we could cast ourselves upon him and be forgiven have restored friendship and restored fellowship. We have a hard time believing that, but we need to cling to that. We have a hard time believing that God is worthy, perhaps, of all of our worship. But as we step back and we consider gospel implication, we can't help but to say, man, if this is who God is and this is what he has done, then everything that belongs to me, in me, and that I possess is to be given to him, right, for his purposes, for the accomplishing of, of, his, of his mission, his desire. This is an act of worship. This is our lives as worship. We're still in verse one. Should we move on to verse two? I think we probably, um, I think we, we probably need to. We observe as we transition into verse two, a um, calculated attack on cultural idolatry. <laughs> a calculated attack on cultural idolatry. 
By constructing an altar to God in Bethel, a city understood to be a site of Canaanite worship, we see through this specific example what he is said to accomplish on a large scale. This is a small scale example of what God is seeking to accomplish on this, on this infinitely large scale. The destruction of that which seeks to rob him of all affection. The destruction of that which seeks to rob him of all affection. He's accomplishing it on a small scale as we look at Genesis 35 too, which we're going to read now. But we see here the accomplishing of, of what God is seeking to, to do on a small scale, uh, what he is to accomplish cosmically on this very large scale one day. Look with me at verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, the call has come, the Lord is persistent, amen, and all of God's people rejoice. Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and and change your garments. Verse 3. Then let us rise and go back to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. As a result of of their murder and, 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 and plundering of the Shechemites, Jacob's family had been defiled on multiple fronts, physically and religiously. His instruction then is clear. Put away these dead gods. Put away these dead gods and and purify yourselves. Wash yourselves and change your clothes. What we see from Jacob here actually assists in the way that we understand Paul's writing in Ephesians chapter 4. Why don't you turn there? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. What we see here by way of Jacob's call to his family informs the way that we understand what Paul has to say to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Paul writes this. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4. Let me turn there. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Paul says this. He says, to put off... Your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Paul here is talking to the church in Ephesus about this this new life that they are to live in Christ Jesus. And we see from Paul a call that beckons us back to what we observe in in Genesis chapter uh, in Genesis chapter uh, 35. Take these these old dirty clothes off. Do away with them. Cast them to the side. Purify yourselves. Change your garments, Paul, uh, uh, Moses writes in verse 2. Then let us rise and go back to Bethel. Verse 4. So they, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the, the, the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. These idols are unceremoniously buried before Jacob and his family depart for Bethel as a new people. Again, it provides incredible insight as to what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4. You are a new people. Do away with these old garments. Right, and walk in this, in this new direction, in this newness of life. It's the same thing that we see that we see Jacob calling his family toward in Genesis chapter 35. I want to share with you a quote from a guy named Kevin Van Hauser who wrote a book called Hearers and Doers in which he says this. This is incredible. I think we have this. Follow along here if you, if you would like. 
He begins and he says, thanks be to God. The Bible frees the captive imagination, enabling disciples to wake up to the false images that hold us captive and walk instead to the truth of what they see in the mirror of Scripture. Right, that, that hearing alone without doing falls short of genuine discipleship. Doing truth involves more than being moral. Discipleship is less about ethics and more about the breaking in of the kingdom of God. We see in Genesis 35 two God accomplishing on a small scale what he is to accomplish on this cosmic scale in Christ, right? This, this calling towards not some type of, of a moral, um, moral behavior or, or ethical practice, but instead this focusing in on the breaking in of the kingdom of God. What do we find as the, as the central object of worship within the kingdom of God? Well, it's Christ Jesus, Right? It's not of the things of the world. It's not the things of, of culture. It's not the things of the flesh. But who is it? It's, it's Jesus. It is all of Jesus. We see that the Bible is, is catapulting us this direction. As Van Hauser writes, freeing our captive imaginations, enabling us to, to wake up and to live as a disciple of Jesus, desiring to live in light of this kingdom reality that is breaking in. Man, in the kingdom. Can we talk about the kingdom for a minute? We need to focus on the kingdom. We need to hear about the kingdom. I don't know that I talk of the kingdom as often as I should. And so let's take just a moment and let's talk about, let's talk about the kingdom. In the kingdom, right, affection, love for, and worship of God is central. In the kingdom, affection, Love for and worship of God is central. And so when we start talking about living a kingdom life, anybody familiar with the Sermon on the Mount in here? Go and read the Sermon on the Mount like every day. And when you finish it and you think, I understand this now, I got this, go back and reread it, okay? Because it talks all about what it looks like to live as a kingdom citizen here and now. It talks about what it looks like for God's people, sojourners and pilgrims living in in a very broken world talks about how we we live our lives and in the kingdom as we live as kingdom citizens here and now our desire is affection love for and worship of god to occupy this central position maybe if this is the point where we do a little bit of inventory right and we say what is it that has occupied this central position in my life all right, is it Christ? Is it, is it the kingdom? Is, is Christ and his kingdom and the mission of God dictating and determining every area of my life or is it something else? This is the point where it becomes like really simple for us to hear and to go, wow, yeah, that sounds really tight. And then just to like move on. But I think what we need to do is we need to sit in that for just a moment. Right? As a part of this call that God extends in his persistence to Jacob and his family, we see this call into this kingdom mentality. Right? We see this call into this, this kingdom posture in which worship of God becomes central. Right? It's centralized. Everything is flowing to it and everything is flowing from it. Is that what our lives look like? Right? Is that what our, our lives look like? It's what it looks like to be a Christian. Right? I think at some point, like, we just have become so indoctrinated as to what it looks like to live unregenerate Christianity that, that living a kingdom-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered life has become this total afterthought. Right? Or this, like, this section of our life as opposed to this reality that invades the human existence. Does that make sense? Are we together on this? Here's what we're doing. We're saying this is the kingdom, okay? Like, wow, talk about like a colossal understatement. Here's the kingdom, this white envelope, right? When we lay it, right, right, like like just in the center of our lives, we just lay it and we say everything, right, comes from and and revolves around and permeates from this. I'm just going to leave that there. That's a That's an illustration that we can continue to go back to. In the kingdom, affection, love for, and worship of God is central. Through the renewed call of God to Jacob in verse 1, Jacob's call to his family in verses 2 through 4, and their response in verse 4, 
we're all provided a glimpse into God's work of persistence. A shadow of what this kingdom that would begin coming in Christ that continues today and will culminate in his return as evil is judged, the saints are raised and sin and sorrow are be made no more looks like. One well-known pastor theologian said it like this. He said, practical solutions are helpful, but they can only be a band-aid for the problem. You need Jesus to deal with the heart of the problem. Here we're seeing a, a persistence displayed by God to deal with the heart of the problem. I think what you and I need to do is we need to step away, right? We need to, we need to step back and we need, to, we need to begin to address the heart of the problem. We're not trying to, to band-aid an issue here, right? But we're trying to, to be really honest with the position of our hearts. And we're being, trying to be really honest with the condition of our hearts. And we're left crying out to God, right, to, to transform our hearts and to transform our affections and to make Christ the central object of our worship. Through the call of God in Genesis 35 and the response of Jacob and his family, we are encouraged to explore our own hearts. We're encouraged to to uncover the influences of cultural idolatry, casting them aside as worthless and embracing the joy of Christ and the purification that he provides through his death on the cross in our place. Are we together? That's our desire. It has to be. And if it's anything less than that, we have to begin asking some serious questions as to what we consider discipleship um, under like the authority of Jesus to be, right? If it's not this, then we've really got to begin asking some serious questions that might drive us to the very heart of, are we like following Jesus at all, <laughs> right? Like, are we, are we following Jesus at all? Are we living the types of, of lives and doing the type of, of work, desiring growth and gospel grace that is required of those who are going to follow after Jesus, right? That's the question that we're asking. We're cutting our hearts open and we're asking the Lord to uncover these influences so that we might cast them aside and cling entirely to Christ. Right, so that we, similarly to what we observe from Jacob and his family here, might set out as a new people. That's what's going on, right? Everything that was plundered as a result of just all of the chaos that comes out of tracing it all the way back to Jacob's decision not to venture on into Bethel and instead go to Shechem. Right, all these things that were, that were collected by way of their plundering are now being buried under this tree. Right, their garments are cast aside. We're seeing this, this act of purification take place in order that we might understand that this is indeed a new people venturing toward a new land with a new and clear focus. Worship. Worship, which leads us to verses five through eight. So let's, let's jump to verses five through eight. We've talked about call, right? And now we are talking about worship. It was out of fear and terror that Jacob responds to the actions of his sons, to the rape of their sister in Genesis 34, the way that he does. Verse 30, he says, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Pezzasites. Our numbers are few. And if they attack us, we're just talking logistically here. What is to happen? Man, we are finished. 
This has created a lot of trouble, and this has created a lot of chaos. Only to Jacob's surprise, their journey to Bethel is a peaceful one. As a terror from God, verse 5, precedes them. No one is messing with Jacob. (laughs) Okay, no one is, is messing with Jacob, and no one is messing with his family. It is as though a cloud of divine peace is hovering over he and his family as they move. His fear, right, his concern is that as we move, as a result of what has taken place, like terror will befall us, that vengeance will befall us. But that's not what happened. The fear of the Lord preceded him, and no one messed with Jacob or his family until they arrive in the city, city formerly known as Luz, where verse 7, here we go, he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Here's what's going on. Are you ready for this? This has been a long time coming. Okay, Jacob is finally right where he's supposed to be. <laughs> he's finally where he's supposed to be. He is, he is finally doing what he is supposed to do with a heart, as will be shown, in a right place with God, all culminating with what? Worship. All culminating with Jacob's worship. An altar is, is constructed. We see the story continues as, as Deborah dies in verse 8 before God again appears to Jacob, reiterating his name change that we saw for the first time in Genesis 32. And for the third time, we read these very familiar words. First introduced in Genesis 2, then again emphasized in Genesis 9. Look with me at verse 11. For those who have been here through the journey through through Genesis, third time we see these familiar words. Verse 11, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Why do we do the Apostles' Creed? (laughs) Why do we say the Apostles' Creed every week? Well, because we need to be reminded of these things that God's word reminds us of as he reveals himself. I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply again. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. A king shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham, to Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. All of this preceding Jacob's work of consecration in verses 14 and 15. As he, as he sets up an altar to God in the place where God had spoken to him, pouring a drink offering and oil upon it. I love what Kent Hughes has to say about what we observe taking place here. Again, Jacob builds the altar, and then we see this consecration of the altar taking place in verses 14 and 15. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, writes this. He says, the fact that Jacob's ritual here goes beyond his previous, some 30 years earlier, which this is not the first time that we have seen uh, Jacob construct an, an altar to the Lord, but we are seeing its progression here. There's something important that is to be understood. The fact that Jacob's ritual here goes beyond, it goes further than his previous, some 30 years earlier, by adding wine, indicates that Jacob was rehabilitating the pillar, right? He's he's investing it with new meaning. This was Bethel, the house of God, and Jacob now understood it with a depth and devotion that he was not capable of in his youth. Once again, at Bethel, Jacob's understanding that it was the house of God penetrated the depths of his being and informed his way of life as never before. We see this and we feel this. We experience this in our own lives. I was talking to, um, to Hannah Slattery this past week. We were having a membership chat on Friday. 
at Gallery Road. That's a lot of information, but I'm just bringing you guys into my life here, right? It's kind of like what it looks like. So we're sitting down and we're, we're talking, and, and I told her, we were having a conversation around baptism. Um, and I told her about the conversations that I've had with so many of you who said, well, I was baptized at this particular point, but then like later on, like I've realized, man, like all the things that I know now that I didn't know, like, like, was that legit? Like, was I a Christian then? Or did I become a Christian later? And what our conversation always comes around is this. Like, first, there's this exploration of the elementary understanding of the gospel. Need and um, the work of faith and rescue in Christ. Like, these, these elementary elements that must be present in order for salvation. Why? Well, because it's, it's more informed than it has ever been. Why? Well, because by grace, we know more now than we ever have. And as we grow in this knowledge, there is this, this tension that we live in in which we realize, man, we know more than we ever have. But I realize at this point, I know less than I ever thought that I did, right? Like that I've got so much further to go. What we're saying here is this, that there is this, there is this newness that is observable in Jacob's life. That there is this, this posture of, of worship and even practice observable in Jacob's life that supports the Lord's work of persistence. At which point we begin asking ourselves some of these same questions. And I'm processing this like as we go some of it. Because I'm, I'm feeling it too. Like uh, or is my worship, is it, is it transforming, right? Is it, is it growing, Right, is, is, is there's this work of, of consecration that's taken place, even as I um, learn more about who God is. We observe this from the life of Jacob. He is new. He has been self-focused. He has been scheming. There is still a remnant of the old man within him. Jacob is in no way or in no sense the hero of this story. It points all to God's grace and his work and his persistence. Jacob has grown. He has benefited from God's work. At the same time, and I'm about to summarize this big section here. At the same time, in all of this, there is, of course, the residual effects of sin that remain. That was a major part of what we talked about in the very beginning, sin's residual effects. So much progress. Things are going so well. We just want to hang out here. And then we come into these these following verses. In verses 16 through 21, we read of Rachel's passing at the birth of Benjamin. We're reminded that we live in a broken world. We are reminded of, of sin's effects. We're reminded of residue, right? That death is a reality, that our lives are, are, are fading, in verses 23 through 22 through 26, we read of, of Reuben's incestuous relationship with his father's concubine, a relationship that would affect the entire family whose effects become more and more clear as we transition into Joseph's story in Genesis 37. We heard Josh read it, and we're not going to, to go back and to, and, to, and to really elaborate any further because we need to close. We're running out of time. We need to come to the table, and we need to celebrate what God has done for us in Christ. But we see that there are these residual effects that set the stage for the way that we understand the life of Joseph as we transition into Genesis chapter 37. So there are these residual effects of sin, and then there is this, this, this newness that we observe through the first half of Genesis 35. And so the question that we begin to ask ourselves is this one. Right? How do we live in light of this practically? Residual effects of sin and newness. Right? Living in, in, these tra- in this transformed condition while still feeling the effects of sinful and selfish decisions that have been made in the past. I want us to close with this, this this singular idea that serves to drive us to the table as a hope-filled people clinging entirely to Jesus. Man, with Christ at the center, with Christ at the center, there is hope for those of us dealing with the residual effects of sin. We observe again and again and again God's grace, both triumphing and mediating their effects 
in our lives. We observe this through the coming chapters. We observe this through the coming books. We observe this through the entirety of this redemptive narrative. With Christ at the center, there is hope for those of us dealing with these residual effects of sin. Are you dealing in some way with the residual effects of sin this morning? Yes, (laughs) you are. And so what hope is there for us in that? Christ. In Christ, there is hope for those of us dealing with the residual effects of sinful, selfish decisions that we have made. These moments and these seasons in which we have have spurned the plan, mission, direction of the Lord and sought after our own way, there there is hope, right? And so what are we left to do, man? Nothing but run to Christ. (laughs) That is the entirety of what we do. That is our only hope. That is our only stay. We run to Jesus and we cling to Jesus and we uh, express our repentance and our gratitude and we desire for the Lord, even amidst the brokenness that remains, to glorify himself and to transform us and to bring us into deeper worship and appreciation and adoration. Do you see how all of this works together? So as we come to the table, this is what we say as God's people. We say the realities that we express as we come here, right? And we take of the bread and we take of the cup and we say it is in this, right? This this physical representation of what Christ has accomplished that we cast ourselves, We we take of the bread and we are reminded of the broken body of Christ. We take of the cup and we are reminded of the spilled blood of Christ. And in doing so, we are seeing the remedy for sin's residual effects. We're experiencing it, right? As you come to the table today, God's people, let's consider that. You take of the bread and you take of the cup and you go, yes, this is how God does. This is how God deals. And so bring me here. Like, I almost just want to hang at the table. Like, I want us to all just come to the table and just, like, hang out here, right? Just, like, sit here and be like, oh, table, like, I just want to hang with you, right? Like, this is where we want to come. We come here and we cling to to this, right? We cling to Christ, his work of of grace and persistence and, and compassion, Let's consider these truths as we come to the, to the table this morning. As these guys come and, and play, let me pray for us, um, and we will uh, we'll, we'll come.